Well, you know, there are many evangelical churches in America that I believe today could be likened uh, to mannequins in a department store window. I don't know if you've ever uh, gone by the department store window and looked in there and gone, wow, I wish I looked that good. You ever been there? You ever said that? They look good. Their shapes are those that we all desire to have. In fact, they never gain weight, they never lose weight, they're just perfect. Uh, they're dressed in the clothes that are the latest fads, the latest fashions, their hair is exactly the right color, and it's in exactly the right place, and it's the exact right cut that it should be. The problem is, while they look good, I hate to break this to you, they are dead. They'll never speak a word that will change a life. They'll never do a deed that will change the conditions of another person. They'll never make any difference. They will simply be in that window and they will just look good. It reminds me of a lot of churches in America today. It's so easy for us to look good while at the same time being actually dead. It reminds me of a comment that I've heard, not just one time actually, maybe you've heard it as well, but several times while standing near the casket at a funeral home, someone will come by and they will say, wow, he certainly looks good. And I've thought to myself, do you know they're dead? They don't look good. You can look good on the outside, but if you are dead, things are not good. In his book, Ashamed of the Gospel, John MacArthur cites the following examples from contemporary churches. Let me give you several of them. These are things which he saw on websites or uh, in uh, postcards that came in the mail. They said things like this. There's no fire and brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical, witty messages. Another, our services have an informal feeling. You won't hear, you won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make them feel welcome, not drive them away. Another said this, as with all clergymen, our pastor's answer is God. But he slips him in at the end, and even then doesn't get heavy. No ranting, no raving, no fire, no brimstone. He doesn't even use the H word, the hell word. We call it light gospel. It has the same salvation as the old-time religion, but with a third less guilt. We're preaching a very upbeat message, one church said. It's a salvationist message, but the idea is not so much being saved from the fires of hell. Rather, it's being saved from meaningless and aimlessness in life. It's more of a soft sell. Another, the idea is to get people through the front doors, then disprove their stereotype of the sweating, loosened, necktied, Bible-thumping preacher who yells and screams about burning in hell for eternity. I like this last one. One church said, the sermons are relevant, they're upbeat, and best of all, they're short. You won't hear a lot of preaching about sin and damnation and hellfire. Preaching here doesn't sound like preaching. It's sophisticated, urban, and friendly talk. It breaks all stereotypes. I hate to tell you, but if you came this morning and you expected that we would have a brief message, you probably have come to the wrong place. The good news is this is America, and you can choose to go someplace else next week. But you won't find that to be true in evangelical churches that have a high appreciation for this book, for God's Word. Quite frankly, what many churches promise today is that the attender will be satisfied and that the God that they supposedly came to worship might not be. 
I would submit to you this morning that things have got to change if we're going to be credible as we share with the world the life-changing message of the gospel. We need change. And I want to remind you, in case you don't uh, remember or have not studied recently, uh, church history and what has happened over the last, in particular, 500 years or so in Christianity. It's happened many times where change has taken place. In fact, in 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis boldly proclaiming the church or proclaiming the truth of scripture that salvation is not earned by good deeds but received as a free gift from God. And those of you that are familiar with church history know that that was the beginning of what we call today the Protestant Reformation. That was actually the catalyst for that to begin. A German monk just simply nailing his thesis to a door. Not too many years later in Scotland, there was a man by the name of John Knox, who was a fiery preacher and a writer. He once said of Queen Mary, Queen of Scots, she's an old Jezebel, very bold man. When she heard of his remarks, she said she feared his tongue and pen more than she feared the armies of England. John Knox was a powerful man. His message was powerful, and he mobilized the people of Scotland into what became known and is still known today as the Scottish Revival. And then came the Wesley brothers. They lived in England in the 1800s, and in his 50 years of preaching, I found this amazing. John Wesley preached 40,000 sermons, 40,000 sermons. He spoke to audiences as great as 20,000 people, and yet in those audiences of 20,000 people, he never used a sound system. He traveled 225,000 miles, historians estimate. And get this, most of it he did on horseback, preaching the truth of Scripture to people. His brother Charles Wesley, that you're familiar with, if you have looked through a church hymnal, I left the church a treasure of 8,000 hymns, such as, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, and Oh, For a Thousand Tongues to Sing. I would say to you this morning that when the word of God is preached, when it is proclaimed, when people are mobilized, revival has occurred in the lives of people and in the hearts of groups of people. And I would say to you that we need that today. When God's people get away, in fact, from loving, from reading, and obeying the word of God, they lose the blessing of God. In fact, I think the psalmist said it well in Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3, where he said, His delight is in the law of the Lord. That is, the Christ follower, the believer in God who's rightly aligned with his creator. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's going to be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, it prospers. And yet, tucked away in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, we find recorded, actually for us, the first revival. And if you have your Bible, and I trust that you do this morning, uh, that you'll turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 8. We've been in our study now for several months. We've made it to chapter 8, and I can uh, boldly say to you this morning that uh, we're just a few weeks away from coming to the conclusion of our study in the book of Nehemiah. Let me just remind you, though, in case you're here with us today uh, for the first time or you need to be caught up, the walls have been rebuilt. In fact, that feat has been accomplished in in, in about 52 days, which is a remarkable uh, thing that has happened. The walls have been rebuilt, and things were going to be good in the city, in that holy city of Jerusalem. Once again, at least people thought that that was the case. 
People were moving back in. You remember what we studied last week? They were moving back in. And they were moving back in basically because now they had the safety of those, of those walls. Uh, there was a, a sense that they could move in, that they could move their families back in, and that they would be uh, okay. There were merchants that were moving back into the city. You can picture the city beginning to bustle again. But there was a vacuum in the city, not unlike some of our cities uh, today in America. In fact, I would say most of our cities in America today. And fortunately, the people in Jerusalem realized that just because their physical circumstances were better, uh, just because uh, things were changes, they're ch- changing, their circumstances were changing, they understood that their greatest need was not walls. Their greatest need was not shelter. Their greatest need was not even food. Their greatest need was a vibrant, authentic, life-changing relationship with the God who had done so much for them, his people. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, you'll remember that the wall was completed in just 52 days, and it was completed just six days before the beginning of the new year. And according Uh, To the law, that was the time to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets. You could go back to Leviticus uh, 23. You can can go back there, and if you want to do some reading, uh, you'll have time to read there. You read about the Feast of Trumpets in chapter 23 and verse 24, uh, which basically marked the beginning of the new year. For most of the people, though, this had become nothing more than just simply a day off of work. But this year was going to be different for these people. God was going to do something in their hearts, something that had not been done in a long time. And that's where we, we pick up our study in uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. Now, some have speculated that this was an impromptu gathering. Uh, almost, in fact, in our modern-day culture, it would be as if uh, somebody tweeted, Hey, gather at the town square. Or somebody posted their status on Facebook. Hey, everybody to the town square. Or like Mark Zuckerberg did last night. You saw that, right? He got married. That's great. You know, girlfriend of eight years, he got married. He he tweets it, he Facebooks it, he gets the message out there. Some have speculated that that's what happened. I I don't think that that was probably the case. You're going to see down later in the text that they already had a pulpit. They didn't just build the pulpit, I'm sure, just uh, impromptu like that. And remember that there were approximately 50,000 people that were gathering there uh, in that square. Now notice where they gathered. It says they gather as one man at the square which is in front of the water gate. Some of you remember this from the 70s. That's where Richard Nixon did his work, right there at the, at the water gate. Now, see, this is why we don't preach right at the beginning of the service. We give you time to wake up just a little bit because you missed some of these nuggets of truth that you didn't know were tucked away there in the book of Nehemiah. Actually, different Watergate for those of you that might wonder, okay? If you're taking notes, we don't want you to get confused there. It says, And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. You you get what they're doing here? There's a lot of you, and you may get a little bit uncomfortable this morning. There's a lot of you that walked in here this morning, and you walked in with nothing but your smartphone. You got it with you. Now, some of you, you do have the Bible on on the phone, and that's that's a good thing. But many of you walked in here this morning without the completed canon of Scripture. Even though you've got many of them at your home, you decided that this morning you didn't need to bring that. And here are these people who don't have a copy of the Scriptures, they don't have a copy of the Pentateuch of the law, and they're asking Ezra to read them the Scriptures. In fact, specifically, they're asking him to read them the Pentateuch. 
The Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is quite remarkable. Let's remember they did not have a copy of this book, and in their day there was no printing press. That would not happen for another 2,000 years. The printing press would not be invented. To hear the scriptures, they literally had to, had to show up someplace, and a guy like Ezra would have to read it to them. And in fact, it wasn't as simple as Ezra just reading to them because the scriptures were written in Hebrew, and most of those people only understood Aramaic, so there even had to be translation that took place for them to understand scripture. Many of these people had grown up in Persia. They had never been to Jerusalem, and so therefore their mother tongue was Aramaic. And they made it clear to Ezra, we want the word. Can you imagine? It'd be so awesome to come in here on a Sunday morning and, you know, we started singing songs and you were liking the songs, but all of a sudden a chant rose up from the crowd, Pentateuch, Pentateuch, we want the word, Pentateuch, give us Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we want it, bring it to us, read it to us. Anybody ever been to a church like that? Somebody may have asked for the Psalms or the Proverbs, those books of poetry, but the Pentateuch? These people were asking Ezra, read us Deuteronomy, read us Leviticus. That's where I start my daily devotions, don't you? Read it to us. We want it. Give it to us. We want it now. So look what Ezra does. Verse 2, it says, Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. Very key for you to understand, by the way. It's the men and the women, and who else? All those that can understand. That's why we have a children's ministry. That's why uh, for our toddlers we have uh, graded classes for them. And some of our people choose to worship together as a family. We welcome that. We think that that's a good thing if you choose to do that. But we also have classes that are graded for them so that they can understand. The people that were gathering in front of Ezra, men, women, and and kids who could understand. On the first day of the seventh month, look at verse 3. He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Did you get it? Ezra read to them, not just a couple verses of Scripture, and then said, now you can be seated. No, no, he read to them for five to six hours. Read it again. From, from early in the morning until midday. Now the audience was made up of all those people that were capable of understanding. We're quite sure since they were gathered there in the town square that they didn't have chairs to sit in. They didn't have a sound system. You can imagine they were sweating. It was hot. They were, they were packed in there. There was as many as 50,000 of them. And they stood there and they let him read to them while that hot sun beat down upon their brow. Thousands of them listened to them as an old guy read from the scrolls the Pentateuch. Do you understand the gravity of that? Do you understand how remarkable it is that the people craved the word of God so deeply that they wanted it read and they didn't care what the conditions were? They must have had a real appetite for spiritual truth. And it's the same thing that should be true of us as Christ followers uh, if we're really in tune with Jesus this morning. In fact, Peter said that if the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, you should crave the word of God like a baby craves milk. You can't get enough of it, you want more. 
And that's why we need to have an insatiable appetite. We have to love the word of God. I'm convinced that for some of us, that's the greatest issue right there, is that we really don't have a love for this book. And some of the reason why we don't have a love for it is because we don't understand it. We've never really dove into it. We've never really seen it change and transform our hearts and our lives. But we need to have a love for God's word. That's what, the, that's what these people had. To tell Ezra to simply get up and read us the book and we'll stand here. All 50,000 of us, even though we're sweating, even though we don't have a chair to sit on, we want the word of God. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11, God says that the word that he sends forth does not return void. It is powerful and it accomplishes exactly what he sends it to do. Hebrews 4, 11, and 12 says that the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword and it's able to penetrate to the joints and marrow. In other words, it convicts and then it cuts out the sin and, and the rebellion and the stupidity that sometimes we have that invades our heart and it leaves room only from God. That is the ministry of the word of God. I will tell you this morning that if I do not have this book this morning, and if any other pastor in the triangle today is standing up in front of people without revealing to them the truth of God's word, that man has nothing to say that is of eternal, lasting value. God said it is his, it is his word that cuts through, that penetrates to hearts. And we believe that to be true. We believe the truth that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all scripture is God-breathed, that it's inspired of God, that it's profitable for teaching, that it's possible for rebuking, that for correcting, for training in righteousness so that you and I can be thoroughly equipped for whatever it is that God wants us to do. God's word is capable of having that ministry in your life. It just means that you've got to love it. You've got to be in it. You've got you to get with it. And so, as parents, it's got the answers for us. It's got the answers for us when we win and when we lose. One pastor said when we're broke and when we're rich, when we're healthy, when we're sick, when we're living and when we're dying, we go to the Scripture because God will speak to us through his word. Let me tell you this morning, if you don't love the word of God, if you have not made it part of your life, and you sit here this morning and you wonder why you can't live the life that you think you want to live in your heart, I would submit to you that your greatest need is to fall in love with God's word. That God's word has the power to change and transform your life. I can give you three little witty sayings this morning that you can go out and say, oh, those are good, those are easy to remember. Unless they are based on biblical truth, they mean absolutely nothing. They will not change and transform your hearts. That's what God's word does for us. Verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood up at a wooden podium, which they had made for that purpose, and beside him stood Mattatiah, Shema, Anani, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, and on his right, Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashnam, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem, and on his left hand. In other words, these men stood up with him five to six hours. It's one thing for people to listen to Ezra preach for five to six hours. It's another thing for 13 men to stand beside him while he does that. I think I could preach for five to six hours. I really don't think that'd be a very difficult thing. I just think trying to find 13 men that will stand up here with me while I do that would be a difficult thing. But they stood there with him. Look at what verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book. And in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people, and when he opened it, all the people did what? They stood up. They stood up. 
Maybe some of you have been in churches that honor the Word of God in that way, and when the Word of God is, is read, they stand up. Maybe that's not such a bad uh, uh, tradition to have. When Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, they, they stood up, and verse 6 says, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, their palms towards heaven. Then they bowed low, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Notice when he opened the book that the people stood, and each time that I have read this particular text, I've been impressed with that. I've been impressed not only for the hunger and the love that they have for God's word, but for the respect that they have. And they said, amen, amen. What does that mean? We said to you several weeks ago, it means I agree. I agree with the truth that is being read. That's right. Speak to me, convict me, transform me. That makes sense to me. Verse 7, also Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Here we have those Levites that are basically explaining the Pentateuch to these people. They're giving them understanding. They not only translated it, but they also explained what it meant and how it applied to these people. This is biblical exposition. All right? This is why we believe so firmly at Northwest that that is the model for biblical teaching, that it is the exposition of Scripture. That I simply stand up here and I say to you, this is what God said, this is what he meant by what he said, and this is what you should do as a result of what he said. In fact, I would say to you probably this is one of the first instances of exposition, of discipleship that we see in the Old Testament. So the Levites come down, and I can just imagine them all breaking up into small groups. And uh, uh, Ezra saying, you take those 2,500 people right there. You know, because you break it down and you start looking at the statistics, that's probably what it, what it would be. You take those 2,500 people right there, you form a small group. And you begin to teach them what I'm saying. Help them understand that. That's what the Levites were doing. By the way, that's a part of the ministry of our staff here at Northwest. That's what they're to be about. They're supposed to be teaching. That's what our elders are supposed to be doing. That's what our student ministry leaders are supposed to be doing. Our, our children's ministry leaders are supposed to be doing. That's what our life group leaders are to be doing. Those of you that serve in those areas, listen to me and make sure you hear this really well. If you don't have a good understanding of the word of God yourself, you have very little to offer people if you're in a role where you are supposed to be explaining biblical truth. You need to make sure that you understand the word of God. I'm so thankful that there are, even in the last few weeks, I've had some conversations with some men in our church, lay guys, guys that have really no intention of going into full-time occupational ministry who've said to me, we want to know the word better. In fact, two guys in particular, one said to me, I want to lead my life group better. Another said to me, I really want to be able to answer questions in my home. I want to lead my family better. I love that. That's awesome. That's great. You have to know the word of God if you're going to be able to explain the word of God. You have to understand truth so that you can teach others. That's why we not only love the word of God, but we have to understand the word of God as well. I'm convinced that's why so many of us aren't able to follow the book, because while we may love it, we may say, I, I love the Bible, we really don't understand it. 
And let me just tell you that you can understand it if you desire to understand it. My son Justin, 16 years old, came into my office yesterday morning. We've been having some great theological discussions the last couple weeks. And he came to me and he had his Bible open and he said, I don't understand this verse. This verse makes absolutely no sense. You know, pretty harsh, you know, to say that uh, Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It makes no sense, but okay, I'll go with that. And so we start talking, and I tell him to turn around and grab this book off my shelf and grab that book off my shelf, and he starts reading. And a few minutes later, I said, does that make sense to you? Do you get it? And he says, yeah, I get it. I understand it. But you have to dig. You have to want that. I know that there's some of you that are here this morning, and you get what I'm saying. You understand that if you are going to become a person who loves the Word of God, it's imperative that you understand the Word of God. Ezra understood that, and he said to the Levites, hey, get out there, break them up into small groups, make sure they understand what I'm saying. And that's what he did. Now notice the people's response to the Word of God, verse 9. Then Nehemiah... Here's Nehemiah mentioned again, by the way. He didn't just go traveling back to Susa. He was not simply just concerned about the walls. He wanted the walls to be rebuilt so that that city could be rebuilt. And he saw their spiritual needs most likely as the greater need. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Let me ask you this question. When is the last time you sat here at Northwest or any other church that you've ever gone to and as the word of God was taught and as the spirit of God made sense of it to you in your heart, you actually got to the point where it physically moved you and you wept because of the gravity of the truth that you're hearing? Has it ever happened? Has it happened recently to you? That's what happened with these people. Remember, for many of them, I speculate for many of them, they had never heard the law read to them. They had never heard God's word actually read to them. This was the first time. They had been in Persia, and in Persia there were probably not scrolls, copies uh, of the law, and they hadn't heard it, and now this is the first time that they're hearing it. And when they hear the truth of God's word after they've begged for it, they begin to weep, they begin to mourn. Why is it that they do that? They do that because Romans 3.20 says, because by thy works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. When we read and understand the word of God, and we would, as it were, put our lives over the top of it, it becomes, it becomes glaringly obvious that we've got a problem. We've got issues in our life. And it ought to cause us to be moved to change. And that's what's taking place here. It's interesting to see the response of the people was that they were grieved because of their sin because they recognized that they were wrong. The law, God's word, exists to convict us of sin. You're supposed to read the word of God and you're supposed to realize how sinful you are and that leads to obedience. That leads to doing what I am convinced and know to be truth. Which brings up the third point, we must obey the Bible. See, there's a lot of people that love the word of God. There's some people that even understand the word of God. There are even less people who love, understand, who are willing to be obedient to the Bible. I sat with a gentleman just this week who basically tried to convince me that everything I thought to be truth in God's word was, in fact, not truth. That he understood things that I don't understand, and it is my stupidity that has led me to the point where I am in my life. Now, for those of you that know me well, you can understand how that conversation went. It was, 
It was good. It really was. It was a good opportunity for him to challenge me and challenge me of what I believe and an opportunity for me to say back to him, I don't pick and choose what I believe out of this book. And I will say to you that we're living in a culture which is going to get more and more, it's going to be more and more difficult for us to actually stand up for what we believe to be truth. The whole uh, agenda of homosexuality that is being perpetrated on our nation, on this world, for the sake of tolerance, that we hate those that practice that lifestyle. We do not hate those that practice that lifestyle. Can I get an amen? Can somebody agree with me on that? We don't hate those people. We love that peop- those people, and yet God is very specific. Somebody said to me just this week, this particular person that I was talking to, how many homosexual couples come to your church? And I said, well, I'm not totally sure. Maybe there are some. I know we had uh, a couple years ago when we were first starting uh, a homosexual couple that contacted me and said, we've looked on your website. We agree with your doctrinal statement. We'd love to come to Northwest. We have one request. Would you please never speak out against homosexuality? It would be confusing to our children. Could you make that agreement with us? Again, you can anticipate my response, which was very, very difficult for me, I might add. Because I wanted them to be here. I wanted them to be here and in this place because I want them to know and understand the God that gave his word to us, that loves us, that wants us to have a right relationship with him, but has said, this is how I expect you to behave. And I said to them, I can't make you that promise. What I can make the promise is that I won't ride off on hobby horses just because I know you're part of our congregation, that you come here on a Sunday morning. If you're a man here this morning and you're committing adultery, I would never make a deal with you that says, hey, you can come here and you'll be comfortable because I promise you I'll never speak out against adultery. If you're a gossiper here this morning, you know because we talked about it just a couple weeks ago, I would never make a deal with you that says, hey, come here, we won't talk about gossiping. No, we will talk about gossiping. It's sinful. It's sinful to God. It grieves the heart of God when we destroy those that we love and those that we're in community with, those that we're in relationship with. And so we'll speak out against that. We'll speak out against adultery. We'll speak out against homosexuality. We will speak out against all of those things which God calls sin. We have to be obedient to the Bible. We can't just pick and choose what we believe. And it's going to become, by the way, more and more difficult to do that, is it not? More and more. Because people, pastors that say what I just said, it's not really socially acceptable even right now, unfortunately. Even in the triangle in the state of North Carolina, the South. We have to be committed to being obedient to God's word. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Ezra, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. I love this. Don't miss it here, this text. This is great. You know, it's just as wrong to be sad when God has forgiven as it is to party when we're living a life of sin. It's wrong to be sad when you understand that God has forgiven you. Certainly as Christ followers, we need to feel the weight of sin. We need to feel when we are disobedient, when we have violated the very holiness of God. But when forgiveness comes, our sadness is to return to what? Joy. We're really supposed to be happy. We're really supposed to be excited. Anyone who does not experience joy after humbly repenting of sin has not understood the gospel of grace. 
You don't understand that. And we're guilty of sin against God because we continue to mourn for what God has forgiven. And we live as if nothing's really happened to us rather than understanding what Jesus has done for us. I believe that's part of the truth of uh, Luke chapter 15 and verse 7, by the way, that says when one sinner repents, what happens in heaven? The angels rejoice. They have a party. They don't sit and go, it's so good somebody came to Jesus. Now chant with me, Jesus. No, they throw a big party. It's like, woo! Remember that guy that his mom and dad have been praying for him? He just trusted in Christ alone as his Savior. Woo! Get the cake out. Go get the barbecue. Go get some chicken nachos at Lost Trace. I mean, do something. But let's have a party. Something's happened. And I believe that's why Nehemiah sent all the Levites out to say, hey, you tell those people not to be sad. Tell those people not to mourn anymore. Yeah, they're sinners, but they've realized the gravity of their sin, and they understand who Jesus is, and that he died for that sin. Tell them to throw a party. Tell them to get excited. In fact, look at the text. Look what he says. He says, go drink. Go drink that sweet drink. Go eat that fatted calf. And by the way, if people don't have any, go and share it with them. That's kind of part of the change that's taking place in your heart. Not just to look after yourself, but to look out after others as well. So verse 12 says, And all the people went out to eat, to drink, and to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Can't you just see it? The Levites went out there and said, Hey, Ezra just said, make sure that you understand, you're not supposed to be grieving. You're supposed to go have a party. Now go home and get some stuff out of the refrigerator. Get some meat. Throw it on the grill. Maybe not exactly like that, but here's what you're supposed to do. And so they went out and they began to do it. Now look at here. The next day it appears as if just the leaders gathered again. Verse 13 says, Then on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, they gathered Ezra the scribe, that they might again gain insight into the words of the law. The leaders kind of came together again, the heads of the household, the priests, the Levites, Look at verse 14. They're digging into the word. They're digging into the Pentateuch. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So they're reading in the word of God. Remember some of these people, they've never read this before. They're reading there, and they go, hey, what's this about the Feast of Booths, about the Feast of Tabernacles? And Ezra and the Levites are going, we're glad you asked. Let us us tell you. You've been gone a long time. You've been in Persia, and they don't do that in Persia, but here in Jerusalem as God's people, here's what God wants us to do. And so these remaining verses of this chapter describe the rediscovery by the people of the the, uh, instructions for celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, or some refer to it as the Feast of Booths. This was something similar to our thanksgiving, but it was to be done in such a way as to be a reminder to the people of the days when their ancestors had wandered in the wilderness. And it was about seven days long. They were to gather sticks and make temporary shelters for themselves, either outside of their house or up on their roof. 
And this was to remind them that they had wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience to God, but God had been faithful to them and God had brought them back to that place um, uh, of, of the land flowing with milk and honey and he had given them everything that they needed that he had indeed been faithful. <laughs> Sounds like a wacky thing to me. I don't know about you, but it's like when my kids were little, my wife said, you know, we, we got that tent in the garage and maybe you should just set it up in the backyard and camp out with the boys. And I'm going, why? Like, why would we do that? We've got this house. We've got a big refrigerator, an ice maker, you know, all this stuff. There's air conditioning. I have a bed. Why would I set up a tent in the backyard? I know to spend time with my boys. We can do it inside, in the air conditioning, with the big screen TV. That would be better for me. Do you understand? I mean, they're reading this, and they're hearing about this this Feast of Tabernacles, and they're going, really? I mean, we just got our house rebuilt. Things are just where we want. You want us to to do what? Look what they do. I love this. Verse 16. So the people went out, brought them, and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in the courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate where Richard Nixon was, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. Verse 17. The entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths, and they lived lived in them. I love that. Underline that in your Bible. Those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The entire assembly. They all said, we're going to be obedient. We're going to do that. We didn't know about that before. Now we've seen it in the word of God. Now we're going to do it. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And look at that last phrase there. I love that. And there was great rejoicing. I'd be like me setting up the tent in the backyard, even though I knew the air conditioning was on and it was 105 degrees outside. And I got out there and I went, Woohoo! This is good, isn't it? We're sweating. It's great. We're spending time together. You know, there's no cold drinks out here. There's no, but this is great. This is awesome. That's what happens when you have a proper response to the Word of God. Great illustration of that. You know, once we've decided that obedience is what God requires and we understand that that's what brings us blessing and that's what brings pleasure to the heart of God. I would say to you, if he says build a hut on top of your house or out in front or out in your backyard, you're going to be willing to do it. You'll go out and you'll start collecting branches. Verse 18. He read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. That a great text. That an awesome text. I mean, imagine, imagine if we had something like that happen every Sunday that we gathered together corporately as the body of Christ. W- w- would you want to come to church here? Would you tell your friends, hey, come, I don't know what's happening, but all I know is that some old guy in a robe gets up and reads the Bible And then people just start responding to it. And they start doing crazy things. I mean, things that our society goes, that's crazy. They go home, they start selling stuff, and they start giving money to poor people, and and, 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 and they start ministering to people that they've never even thought about before. And man, God's just really showing up in that place. Wouldn't that be an awesome place to be? That's what's happening here as we close the end of chapter 8. This is an assembly, this is a church service like none other. The first recorded revival in Scripture.
As we close this morning, let me give you a few characteristics of true revival. Just a few characteristics of true revival. Number one, true revival results in joyful obedience to God's word. True revival results in joyful obedience to God's word. Many of us know this, but we don't practice it very often. We're not simply to be hearers of the word, right? We're supposed to be what? Doers. I'm telling you, if you came here this morning and all you wanted to do was hear the word and have your ears scratched a little bit, I'd say to you, stay home in the bed. That's what I'd do. I mean, my alarm went off this morning and that's what I wanted to do. That would have been a problem, but that's what I wanted to do. If I didn't have any intention of being obedient to the truth which is proclaimed in God's word, I would not be here. When true revival comes to your heart, it results in joyful obedience to God's word. It reminds me of what the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 15, verse 16 of Jeremiah. Your words were found and I did what? I ate them. I love that. I found your words and I ate them. I can tell you one thing. I only eat things that I think look really good. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've started to get out in our cafeteria. Starbucks gives us stuff. Have you noticed that? Some of you are going, man, that stuff's really expensive at Starbucks, and we get that here at church. That's awesome. I'm looking at some of that stuff out there going, wow. That's exactly what we're to do, Jeremiah says, with the word of God. I found your word, and that looked good to me, and what did I do? I consumed them. I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I've been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. True revival results in joyful obedience to God's word. Joyful obedience to God's word. True revival isn't just simply you going, oh, I guess I have to do it, you know, crack someone on the back, oh, I guess I, you know, like sometimes we do when we're kids living in a home where, you know, they're telling, oh, I got to do it. My dad says, if I don't do it, I can't eat dinner tonight. He says, if I don't do it, I got I to gotta spend the night on the front lawn. Oh, so I'll go ahead and... That's not what it's talking about. Revival. When revival breaks out, you do it because you want to do it. And it brings incredible joy. That's how you know, by the way, that your heart is properly aligned with Jesus. When you obey, not because you have to obey, but because you want to obey, that is the thing that brings you joy, that brings you pleasure. Number two, true revival replaces excuses with confession. Replaces excuses with confession. No real change ever happens unless we stop making excuses. I can always tell when I've got somebody in my office that I'm talking to, I can always tell when they're ready to change. You know why? They don't give me any excuses. They start talking about what it is they've been doing and just say, I'm wrong Tell me what to do. I am ready to do it. They replace excuses with confession. They stop making excuses for their behavior, and we begin to agree with God that what we've done is sin, that it brings displeasure to his heart, and we confess, and we move in a different direction. And number three, true revival replaces religion with the gospel. Oh, don't miss that this morning. If you don't get anything else this morning, make sure you get that last point right there. True revival replaces religion with the gospel. Some of you, this is why you have no joy in your heart about this thing we call the Christian life because what you have maybe is religion, but you have never really trusted in Christ alone as your Savior. You've really never accepted the true gospel. 
Let me compare them real quickly, if I might. Religion says, if I obey God, he will love me. Right? Some of us grew up in homes like that. If I do what mom says, if I do what dad says, then they will love me. If I don't, what? They don't love me. And we transpose the same thing on our God that says, if I do what he says, then he'll love me. If I don't, oh, he's going to beat me. He's going to... That's religion. The gospel says this. Because God loves me, I can obey. Because God loves me, I can obey. Religion is sometimes all about your birth family. You come to church here this morning, maybe for some of you high school students, you're here because your mom and dad make you come here. That's religion. You got religion. You are a religious person. The gospel, on the other hand, is not based on your birth family. It's based on new birth in Jesus Christ. When you come face to face and realize that you are a sinner and apart from God, you are lost eternally. Number three, religion says what I do matters. The gospel says what Jesus has done matters. Religion says sanctification justifies me. In other words, when I keep doing all these good things, somehow I'll be better. Somehow God will like me and God will let me be one of his children. And so we constantly are running this race trying to please God. The gospel says justification enables sanctification. We aren't justified because we're sanctified. Justification allows us to live the life and to become who God wants us to become. Religion sees hardship as a punishment. The gospel sees hardship as a sanctified affliction. It's an opportunity for me to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Religion says what? Says it's all about who? It's all about me. The gospel says it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's all about Jesus. Religion, in the end, leads to pride and it leads to despair. The gospel, when you understand the true gospel, it ends in joy. Someone asked evangelist Billy Sunday if revivals lasted. I love this. He replied, nope, but neither does a bath. It's good to have one occasionally. Isn't that good? Does it last? Nope, but neither does a bath, but you take them occasionally because you need them. Maybe for many of us this morning, in fact, it's bath time, right? Maybe it's bath time. Maybe you haven't bathed spiritually in a while. Maybe from from time to time in the history of the church, God has used his spirit to bring conviction to the hearts of his people. And as a result, they've gotten a new passion to pray and uh, to really search scripture and not only to search it, but to love searching scripture and to confess their sin. And as a result, he brings fresh life to individuals into the larger body of Christ. I can assure you of this this morning, that when God intervenes, our attention will shift to him. That's what happens. Divine intervention, when it is recognized, will result in authentic worship and unquestioned obedience. And that's God's ultimate purpose for our lives. Our objective is his glory, and that's what brings joy and satisfaction to our lives. Do you know this morning that God wants to do for you and me, he wants to take us to the same place that he took the nation of Israel where worship is sincere and where it is spontaneous. A place where obedience is an overflow of a grateful heart. That's what it ought to be like. It shouldn't be drudgery. It shouldn't even be a lot of, a lot of, a lot of work that I got to do this and if I got to do this, I earn God's favor. 
It's where obedience is an overflow of a grateful heart. And that's why change in a life will begin when you understand and you properly respond to the word of God. I trust that we'll do that uh, today. We've uh, planned uh, some of our music to be here at the end of the service in order that we, we might do that. And I, I urge you today uh, to maybe realign yourself in that way. And to say that my response to this book ought to, ought to bring out in me a joy, a sense of rejoicing, a sense of gratefulness, a realization of who I am without him and who I am because of Jesus. That's what true revival is all about. I trust I know for me, spending 20 hours in this text this week, it's been good for me. And I trust for you to spend 45 minutes here and maybe to spend some time on your own, that God will do a work in your heart to realign you with where he wants you to be so that you have a proper response to the word of God that brings change. Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning for your word. God, I am really in awe of this particular text when I see these people, thousands of them, and their response, they're begging for the word of God. They've gathered there. It's uncomfortable. They don't have a chair to sit in. There's no air conditioning. There's no breeze blowing. And yet they say, just give me the word of God. And when they get it, they receive it. And as a result of what they hear, it leads to obedience. God, I pray that in my life. God, cause me as a pastor not to become so familiar with biblical principle that it becomes nothing more than just simply habit of what I do. I pray that I would be grateful for who you are, be grateful for the work that you did on the cross that made it possible for me to experience change in my life because of a proper response to the gospel. And God, I pray now that as we hear your word, read and as we sing, that our hearts might demonstrate to you a proper reflection of how we feel about you as our Savior, as our Lord, and as the God of the universe. We pray these things in Jesus' name.